Hello, people, and welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chantler. Welcome to the podcast for clinical psychologists by clinical psychologists. It is my absolute pleasure today to welcome Dr. David Priest to the podcast. First, a little bio. David is a clinical psychologist and lecturer at Curtin University, where he directs the Perth Emotion and Psychopathology Lab. He also works as a clinician in private practice and is currently the West Australian State Chair of the APS College of Clinical Psychologists. Dave's main interests are in trans-diagnostic approaches to assessing, conceptualising and treating emotional disorders or problems. Much of this research focuses on the key role that emotional awareness and emotion regulation difficulties play in a range of mental health issues. Dave's expertise on emotion is recognised internationally, having published over 50 journal articles or book chapters on the subject. He is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Emotion and Psychopathology and is on the editorial boards of both Emotion and Frontiers in Psychiatry. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thanks, Lisa. It's very exciting to be here. I, uh, I enjoy listening. I enjoy listening to the podcast. So now I'm on the other side. It's exciting. That's true. Yes, it's great to have you. We've been talking about this one for a while, haven't we? So uh, it's great to finally make it happen. So alexithymia. I have to admit that I don't know a lot about alexithymia. No more than I did when I first started talking to you about it. Uh, I've done a bit of reading since then, thanks to you. But I think it's one of those topics that quite a few clin psychs don't know a lot about. Before we get cracking on that, though, I wonder whether you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about how you got into this uh, this crazy topic of alexithymia and emotion regulation. Yeah, well, a lot of it started back when I was first doing my clinical training. So in doing clinical masters uh, and first starting to see clients, uh, kind of noticing, as I'm sure many of us do working with clients, that people rarely fit in nice little boxes of I just have depression symptoms or I just have anxiety symptoms or I just have eating disorder symptoms. Usually people will present with a range of symptoms from a range of different symptom categories. And so that got me very interested early on in transdiagnostic approaches to understanding and treating mental health issues where we look at what are core common mechanisms underlying a variety of symptom presentations and the idea being that if we can get in and target those and get impact there we might be able to then get good impact across a range of the symptoms that are being uh, impacted by that and so in that world in that in that transdiagnostic world emotion is is a big player in that field so I a lot of the time people are coming in because they feel emotionally unwell. They might experience too much negative emotion, not enough positive emotion. They might be reacting or responding to their emotions in unhelpful ways. And so this, this area of emotion and how do I process and manage emotions is pretty massive there. And so I was finding when I was first doing my clinical training and doing my case report formulations, emotion and emotion regulation was coming up for pretty much every client. And that then when I got to the end of my clinical training got me really interested in I liked research and I wanted to do more work in that area because I was writing emotion regulation down, but not fully understanding it as much as I'd like. So then mm -hmm. when I was looking around for a PhD, there was another researcher, Rodrigo Becerra, that I now do a fair bit of work with, and he was working in that transdiagnostic emotion area. And so I went to him and he had some data on this thing called alexithymia. And I hadn't actually uh -huh. heard of the term alexithymia until then. And I was like, what is this alexithymia thing? I'm glad I'm not the only one who, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in my clinical training, no one mentioned it to me. I think uh, at the core of it, alexithymia is basically a fancy word for difficulties in emotional awareness. And so I think yes. in our clinical training, we'll hear a lot about emotional awareness and emotional intelligence and various constructs that have a lot of overlap or similarities with alexithymia. But the alexithymia term and, and construct, I hadn't come across until then. And now it is a lot of my life. So Yes, I can tell. So the reach the research part of your brain has dominated, has it? Because I'm here that you know you're you're mostly mostly working in a university setting with some clinical work on the side. Is that about how it works? Yes, yeah. So most of my time spent at Curtin uh, lecturing in the, in the postgrad psych program there, then also doing research primarily in this area of emotion, emotion regulation, how we process emotions and trying to map what are the profiles of emotional functioning that underlie various types of psychopathology? How can we assess that? And then how can we 
develop treatments and enhance treatments to target those things really well. So a lot of my research is in that sort of space. And then I do do some clinical practice uh, as well. Mm -hmm. So uh, busy, busy working with clients. (laughs) Yes, perhaps too many things. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's really good to hear, um, you know, an academic who, uh, you know, is working in the field to doing, seeing some clients uh, and getting that, getting their hands dirty, if you like, in that kind of way. Um, I re- really respect that. So good to hear. All right. So that's your day to day. So where shall we start? I would like to know about this term called alexithymia. Can you give us a bit of a t- brief, you know, summary textbook definition yes. of this thing called alexithymia. Yes. Yeah, so the, the term alexithymia was coined by a couple of psychiatrists in America back in the 1970s. And the term comes from the Greek meaning no words for emotions. And I it's see. used, so the term alexithymia is used to describe a trait where people have a set of emotion processing deficits they they have this set and there's three core components most literature supports there's three core components to it difficulty identifying one's own feelings difficulty describing those feelings and what we call an externally orientated thinking style where someone will tend to not want to focus their attention internally on their internal emotional states so it's this combo then of I rarely focus attention on my emotions. And when I am focusing attention on my emotions, I have a lot of difficulty accurately working out what they are and being able to talk about them and describe them to other people. Uh, This presentation of I'm feeling bad right now. Is it sadness? Is it sadness, fear, anger? I don't really know. It just feels like this big overwhelming soup of emotion. Uh, That that, that would be kind of a, a more typical presentation of high alexithymia. So it does exist on a continuum it's not do i have alexithymia or i don't it's everyone has some level of alexithymia and on that continuum do i have low levels average levels high levels and if i've got high levels of alexithymia i've got a lot more difficulties processing emotions paying attention to emotions so if we go back a bit there you said that alexithymia is three things like i think of the ide the difficulties identifying emotions difficulty describing it and this kind of external focus can you tell us a bit more about that yeah. one it's external yeah. focus yeah so externally orientated thinking there's some different ways of defining it in the literature but the way it's defined in in my model uh is the extent to which you focus attention on emotions so the the term comes from this idea of observing patients and finding that they would tend to want to focus on external the external world the external stimuli they wouldn't want to look internally focus on internal uh, particularly emotions and so that's where that externally oriented thinking term comes from uh, within my model which we call the attention appraisal model of alexithymia we can basically think of it as a cluster of when i want to process an emotion there's a few steps i need to go through i've got this emotion that's popped up to process it i first need to focus attention on it i need to f- notice the emotion i then need to appraise what the emotion is and and what it means for my goals and then based on that appraisal i might then want to try to regulate the emotion and so externally oriented thinking fits in in terms of that initial step of how good am i or to what extent do i tend to focus attention on the emotion and then different identifying and describing feelings can be thought of in that more appraisal step of once i am focused on the emotion can i actually accurately work out what that emotion is with a high degree of nuance or is it this more undifferentiated state of i just i just feel bad or i feel good or i feel weird i i can't yeah yeah Yeah, i like this notion of undifferentiated soup of Mm. emotions i think that makes a lot of sense that'll make a lot of sense to clinicians you said um that um alexithymia is a trait that all of us have to a certain extent is that right yeah so everyone will be at some point on that continuum if you're on the low end then you have good emotional awareness ability but everyone's uh-huh. somewhere on that continuum. And most people, it's normally distributed in the general population, meaning most people are somewhere in the middle where they're okay at processing their emotions. But if we're on the high alexithymia side of that continuum, uh, we get a bit worried there clinically because it seems to put people at risk for a variety of bad long-term outcomes in that clinical space. Okay. And I want to go there in just a second. I've got one yeah. question there about if this is a trait, yes. then... I'm wondering where it fits or where it 
might fit on the, you know, the big, the big five. Because is that what you're saying? In some ways, it's a bit of a personality trait. Yeah, I mean, people do often use the word personality trait around it. Um, I tend to stay away from the word personality when describing it as a trait a little bit. Just from the, I think there's some haziness and some blurriness there around. To what extent is it the ability for us to do something? Uh, I think in that ability space, we often think of intelligence, for example. What's my ability to do something? And that's maybe described less as a personality trait. And I, I think a lot of alexithymia we can understand in that way as well. But a lot of alexithymia can also be understood in terms of our typical ways of behaving or our focus of attention. Am I someone that tends to want to focus attention on my emotions or not? One of the ways I like to think of it, because there's this question comes up in the literature a fair bit, is it a trait or is it a state? Is it something that that is this core of who I am that predisposes me to say psychopathology? Or is it that mm. I now experience something traumatic or I'm going through a really distressing time and now I've got alexithymia as a bit of a symptom or secondary to that? And the short answer to that question of is it a trait or a state is that it can be both. And so one of the ways I like to think about it, and there's a fair bit of evidence behind this, is that there seems to be two core things underlying someone's level of alexithymia. One is what's the developmental level of my emotion schema system? So these cognitive structures in our brain that we use to process emotions, how well developed are those? We can differ in how well developed those might be. And so someone where those aren't very well developed, even if they really, really, really want to process an emotion at a high degree of nuance and accuracy, they might not be able to. Mm. But, so the schema system matters, uh, how well developed those, those cognitive structures are that allow us to process emotions. But the other side of it as well is, to what extent am I avoiding focusing on my emotions? So this notion of experiential avoidance of emotions. Maybe I'm going through a really distressing time right now. I don't want to focus on my emotions. I don't want to work out how I'm feeling. And so I'm using as a bit of an emotion regulation strategy, not focusing on my emotions. And so someone's overall level of lexithymia will reflect that combo of how developed are my emotion schema system structures, but also to what extent am I avoiding focusing on my emotions? And so when we then think of that trait state distinction, the emotion schema system structure stuff is probably more trait-like, more stable, not going to change a bunch unless there's targeted intervention. Uh, there's that relative stability to it. But something like how much I'm avoiding my emotions right now might be changing and fluctuating a bit more regularly maybe i'm going through a really distressing time right now i've just experienced something traumatic and part of my way of dealing with it or trying to cope with it is i, I shut out that focus on emotion i'm just going to interrupt if i may just for a second yeah, sure. because my schema therapy brain my schema therapy trained brain is thinking about a couple of things there when you talk about cognitive structures and um, schema schemas of course i think about something slightly different but um, i think you have something different in mind when you talk about cognitive structures if you can give me a brief, give our listeners a bit of a brief summary so we know we're on the same page. Yeah. So what I mean by this is the cognitive structures or prototypes or schemas that we have in our brain that allow us to work out what stimuli in the world are. Templates for viewing the world, if you yes. like. Yes. Yeah. I think that's another really nice way of putting it where, say, I might have a template or a prototype okay. in my head for what a chair is. And so when I look at that chair, I can, oh, it's got the thing that you sit on. It maybe has the four legs, it. but it doesn't always need to have four legs. And so I can then look quite quickly and notice that that's a chair. And so we have similar structures in our brain for emotions where, okay, this seems to be a negative emotion. Is it sadness? Is it anger or fear? Oh, this sort of situation caused it. I'm feeling this way in my body. Uh, it's these sorts of memories or cognitions associated with it. And that then allows me to, okay, this stimuli that I'm noticing, this emotion, what category does it fit? Got and it. and got how it. well developed is my sense and understanding of those categories so that I can put it and fit it to the more nuanced category rather than just having to stop, I suppose, at is it bad or good? the more undifferentiated yes. categories. Is it is it more nuanced than that? I, I'm not sure. I can't, I'm not confident in going below that level. And so someone high in alexithymia, to the extent that those schema systems haven't been able to be well developed, uh, will have a lot more difficulty going to that more nuanced level when trying to process the emotion. So not so different in some ways um, 
uh, from the kind of way we talk about in the schema world, talk about, you know, perhaps a detached part of us who doesn't, uh, as a state, doesn't uh, examine emotions, doesn't allow ourselves to see what one's yes. feeling and it keeps attached from, from the emotional state. Okay, let's go on to talk a little bit about how this is a problem. I can see that people who are high in alexithymia might have problems, but I'm interested to hear um, your take on this. Yes. So part of the reason that we're interested in it clinically is because high levels of alexithymia seem to be associated with quite a wide range of different mental health issues and interpersonal mm -hmm. problems. So people high in alexithymia will be more at risk for the development and maintenance of things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, substance use disorders, personality disorders, psychosomatic disorders, sets of disorders where they're really characterized by emotion dysregulation, dysregulated levels of affect, these emotional disorders, if we like to use that term. Alexithymia seems to put people at risk for those, for developing and, and maintaining those. And that includes disorders like depression, anxiety, where at the core criteria, something's going wrong with emotion. I've got too much negative emotion, but also disorders where part of the core conceptualization is I can't regulate or understand my emotions very well things like for example eating disorders or substance use disorders and do we know why I mean, what's the research telling us about why this link with um people who are high on alexithymia and these psychological disorders yes a lot of our work is now trying to look at this and one of the key pathways seems to be through impairing emotion regulation so our model of alexithymia we actually fit alexithymia within the most widely used emotion regulation model in the effective science field so that's one called the process model of emotion regulation by james gross and so by fitting alexithymia into that model one of the things we're excited about with that is being able to explore how does alexithymia relate to emotion regulation so at its core that model says that we generate and process emotions through these four stage systems so there's, uh, and each system has the four stages of situation, attention, appraisal, response. So in a system like that, where we're processing emotion, it outlines at the situation stage, that's we've got an emotion that's present, say fear, I'm feeling fear. To process that emotion, as I was touching on just before, we then need to go through these steps of, I focus attention on the emotion, I notice that that emotion is present. I appraise that emotion in terms of what it is and what it means for my goals. It might be, hey, this is fear. I don't want to be feeling fear. And then based on that appraisal, very centrally based on that appraisal, at the response stage, I might then activate a goal to try to regulate that emotion. I might try to change that emotion. I might try to get rid of the fear. And so mm. that appraisal, uh, which is where alexithymia is, those difficulties identifying and describing our feelings are directly impairing our capacity to make accurate appraisals there. That appraisal is so central for dictating future emotion regulation decisions. I might have certain emotion regulation strategies that work really well when I'm sad, but maybe work a little less when I'm angry, a little less well when I'm angry. So if I can't understand or be confident to start with what exactly what emotion I'm feeling, I'm at a disadvantage when it comes to them being able to regulate it and then more predisposed to mental health issues characterized by dysregulated levels of emotion. So I'm interested to hear about the relationship with what you're saying, possible relationship with trauma, because I'm wondering about how as a, as a general construct that applies across a lot of disorders, this might um, impact on alexithymia levels. And of course I'm thinking about early trauma, not so much as single yes. event adult traumas, but, you know, early even pre-verbal traumas. What, any thoughts about that? Yeah, we can, well, I think we can look at this on a few different levels. And one is what causes alexithymia. I think trauma can be key to a lot of presentations of high yeah, alexithymia. Indeed. So twin studies, for example, that have looked at genetic and environmental impacts on how, do, how does alexithymia develop tend to find that the genetic contribution, genetic factors is about 30 to 33% of the variance. And then the rest is environmental factors. And environmental factors that seem to be very important are to what extent, particularly in our early environment throughout childhood, things like this, was our environment an emotionally validating place? 
a place where it was safe mm. for me to express emotions, to experience okay. emotions, a place where I learned about emotions, where, for example, little five-year-old me can be running along. I fall over and scrape my knee. My mom comes mm -hmm. over and helps to soothe me. Or, oh, Dave, I can see you're crying. What happened? Or did you fall over? That might really hurt. That must really hurt. Are you feeling sad right now? What my mom's doing there, perhaps implicitly, is building up my emotion schema systems in a way. I'm learning about emotions. I'm learning about the sorts of events that happen, how I feel in my body uh, linked to certain emotions, the sorts of labels that fit that experience. It's, it's what we can call emotion education. And so some people have experienced really good experiences like that from caregivers of learning about emotions, being safe to experience, express emotions. And that's going to build up our emotion schema structures, reduce emotional avoidance and lower levels of alexithymia. Whereas if we're someone that hasn't had those sorts of experiences and has had uh, traumatic experiences and, and environments where I'm not safe to express my emotions. That's the sort of experiences that are going to predispose us to the higher end of alexithymia. The question that comes to mind then is around um, whether we treat the alexithymia or, we, or the trauma. Yes. And I, I'm not sure there's necessarily one answer there's right and one's yeah, wrong. Yeah, Some of yeah, my true. perspective on that is in our case formulation, in our case formulation is the ability to process and understand and pay attention to emotions and the fact that that's impaired right now. Is that a core part of why we think the problems in life or the psychopathology or whatever issue we're trying to address, is that a key thing underlying the problem? So if we think the deficits in emotion processing are a key thing contributing to and maintaining the problem, then in my view, going in and targeting, trying to reduce levels of alexithymia can be uh, a quite important target. That's not to say that uh, particularly if there's a presentation of alexithymia that might be it's a more avoidance space. Say I was going along, I had a pretty good understanding of my emotions, something traumatic happened to me, a big stressful event. And part of my way of dealing with that is uh, avoiding the, the emotion. That's not to say that if I can go in and I can address the underlying psychopathology that then will my need to use that as a coping technique goes away and my levels of alexithymia might then reduce. And we do see that in studies where if you treat, say, levels of depression, levels of anxiety, PTSD, yes. you, you do see reductions in alexithymia. Okay. So I think okay. you can think about it in both ways. I see. That makes a lot of sense. So you've said that it's a problem in a bunch of psychiatric disorders. Yes. And we see it in uh, associated with... Uh, increased suicidality, somatic complaints, mm. elevated mortality rates. I'm pretty interested yes. in that. Um, can you just tell us what your thoughts are around that? Yeah. So you mentioned their somatic disorders. Some of the most early work in the alexithymia field was actually around psychosomatic disorders. So Sifnios and Namaya, who were the psychiatrists that coined the term in the 70s, were working in uh, psychiatric wards where it was patients that had psychosomatic disorders. They had disorders where they're having medical symptoms. But there's no medical cause that they can find. So there's a, they assume there's a psychological component to it. And they noticed that in a lot of those patients, they had high levels of electrothymia. One of the pathways behind that seems to be there's a lot that can go in on in our body that is not emotion. And there's stuff that goes in our body that that is emotion. And it can be tricky sometimes, particularly for someone with higher alexithymia, to tell exactly what some bodily sensations are. So there's the capacity, if I have high levels of alexithymia particularly, to when I'm experiencing emotion, maybe I'm unsure if it's an emotion and I misattribute it to that could be a physical symptom. Oh, that's interesting. Or vice versa. Maybe maybe I'm sick and I think it's actually an emotion. So that, that, that is interesting. yeah, that ability to differentiate emotions from other sorts of bodily signals seems to be a, a key part of the picture in terms of psychosomatic disorders. I'm curious, super curious about the link between what you're talking about, between pain and trauma and this notion of alexithymia. Cause I've, in my readings recently um, around early, really early trauma uh, and pain, is it, these these things seem to be co-occurring and I, I'm not sure of the link at all, but it's just been in my head, you know, that people, people who have trauma report high levels of pain not associated with any particular injury. I'm wondering after listening to you whether that's, 
what that is? Is it is it uh, perhaps a misunderstanding or misattribution of uh, emotional pain to physical pain, or am I off being completely? Yeah, I think it's an area where we need uh, some more work. It's an area that um, I'm working with a few uh, colleagues in America that work a lot in chronic pain, and they're really interested in looking at alexithymia. And certainly, there, there are studies showing that in in populations with higher levels of chronic pain, often we will see elevated levels of alexithymia. So I think it can be part of the picture where that ability to process emotions and and distinguish it from other types of bodily signals is important in that space as well. But also I think there's a lot of uh, physical issues that can have some some crossover with our capacity to regulate those emotional states as well and and be able to apply uh, emotion regulation strategies that, for example, aren't just avoidance or suppression based, maybe other healthier ways of regulating emotions. And so we, we see with alexithymia in terms of links with emotion regulation that people high in alexithymia will tend to select strategies to regulate their emotions that we know from the research are associated with poor long-term outcomes. So they'll tend to select sets of strategies that are more avoidant focused. I want to suppress this emotion down. I don't want to express this emotion. I want to kind of put a mask up. I want to avoid talking about the emotion. And, and, And those sorts of avoidant emotion regulation patterns we know can be quite relevant can I just summarize this for my listeners there? So I might get you to repeat some of that, but I'm hearing, because I'm interested in this notion of why are people with high lexithymia more suicidal than others? And I'm mm, hearing yes. that you say that maybe that's partly because they're choosing poor uh, coping strategies and a lot of emotionally avoidant strategies, and that leads to poor outcomes. Is is that right? Yes. So a summary of a lot of that uh, would be, that people high in alexithymia will tend to be experiencing or be more predisposed to a very tumultuous emotional world, high levels of negative affect, high levels of distress, as we were talking about before, this big soup of emotion that I find super overwhelming. And so to the extent that that distress becomes overwhelming in their life and is associated with various psychopathologies, we do see Uh, increased links then with uh, suicide. You're listening to Clinically Thinking, where the best therapists and the best thinkers in clinical psychology share their knowledge and experience with clinicians worldwide. Learn about upcoming episodes and find out more about our guests by following the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. Now, back to the show. All right, so I'm thinking about in Clay clients with severe depression, um, kind of those malignant depressions you see sometimes uh, with um, complex PTSD or borderline presentations. These things kind of typical for high suicidality, right? That makes mm. sense in our clinical world. I'm also interested in clients with personality disorders, say the more unusual, odd kind of ex- eccentric clients, the schizoid, mm. for example. These sort of people who I think probably have sometimes have high levels of alexithymia, you know, don't know what they feel maybe to a certain extent don't care, but I'm I'm curious to know how these people present sort of in, in, you know, in the room, in your room for in, uh, and what you make of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's some really important points there. A lot of the research on alexithymia and personality disorders has tended to be focused a bit more on borderline personality disorder. Yes. I'm hearing that. And, and, there are very high rates in borderline personality uh, disorder of alexithymia. But it's an interesting point. This it, it comes up around this question of are there, say, subtypes of alexithymia where we might have a type of alexithymia where I am experiencing a lot of negative emotion. It's overwhelming. It's undifferentiated. I don't understand it. But is there also a subtype of alexithymia where I'm just more disconnected from emotions. It's almost like I'm not experiencing emotions. There's a real emotional flatness there. There's yes. not 
affect for me to actually pick up and interpret. There's that disconnection. And we certainly do see that in the literature as well. There's a psychiatrist, Richard Lane, that did a case study a few years ago of a, a patient that had very low levels of emotional reactivity. There wasn't really any emotion there to pick up and they'd report higher lexithymia and higher lexithymia was present, but it was this kind of subtype where I'm kind of not experiencing emotions. And so I think that that is something that I, I see as well in my clinical work. I think the typical alexithymic presentation, certainly the literature backs this up, would be more of the overwhelming negative emotions side, but there are certainly, I think, variants of I'm very disconnected from my emotion. There's there's a flatness to the affect there that probably links up with some of the, those other presentations that you're talking about. Yes. And it's a sense of, oh, I, I, it's not very popular at the moment. Like it's not sort of that notion. Skip's personality disorder seems to be a little bit out of fashion besides unless you're borderline or maybe narcissistic. It doesn't seem like there's much talk, just, just by the by, about the other PDs. But from my perspective, they're alive and kicking and I see them in my office um, mm. so, um, I, I definitely see this sort of flatness and absence and sometimes the GPs will refer them for treatment of say social anxiety disorder or anxiety yes. or depression. And you get them in your office and you think, well, that's not what this is. This, they're the symptoms. That's not the overarching explanation. And, yes. and so I'd be very interested in the future to see what the research, what your research has to say about these more uh, flat presentations a little a little odd or unusual when you find yourself thinking this is not an access one issue around an anxiety disorder and can we then you know treat these people especially with pd you know with the kind of uh the pds where we think this is pretty permanent you know how do we how do we in in, um intervene in this space so i think it's a kind of a watch this space uh from you isn't it you know the research is that right yeah, and I think an important direction for that will is be will be as well. Um, not so much looking at alexithymia in isolation, but looking at alexithymia as part of the fuller emotional profile. So that's a lot of what we're trying mm-hmm. to do at the moment. Where can we map out how emotions are generated for this person in terms of emotional reactivity? How easily activated? How intense? And how long in duration do the emotions tend to be? Uh, and then the ability to process emotions, which is where alexithymia comes into the picture, and then that ability to then go on and regulate the emotions effectively. And so throughout all those stages, we might have different levels of strengths or, or where issues are happening. And I and one thing we're trying to do now in our work is for different types of clinical presentations, map out across that full emotional profile. What are the profiles underlying that? So that then from a transdiagnostic emotion perspective, we can go in and say, oh yeah, this is the stage that we need to target. Alexithymia is the issue here because, I, or emotion regulation is the issue here. Because I think we'll have many clients where they're acutely aware of their emotions, that they know exactly how they're feeling, but they're not really sure what to do about it. They're not sure how to manage those overwhelming emotions. Whereas then we might have other clients where just at that foundational level of being aware of the emotion, there's the difference. And so to the extent then that our treatment needs to focus on just emotion regulation or emotion regulation and awareness training, so on. I feel like um, at the moment with, you know, uh, the work on um, uh, borderline, you know, um, with Linda Hand's work that most of us are well-schooled in that and um, the, mo- the notion of emotional re- regulation or dysregulation is pretty yes. much, of you know, uh, common in uh, parlance. In, in, uh, um, so, but the next time, not so much, you know. So we'll talk about, oh, yeah, we need some mindfulness strategies, we need some distress tolerance, the client has to be able to identify their emotions and then validate that identification you know before then going on and manage it so I feel quite comfortable in that sphere and I suspect most of our colleagues would too but when you start talking about alexithymia my brain wants to do a you know (laughs) twist and I think okay well it's a similar kind of concept but it's broader isn't it how do we get clinicians thinking about alexithymia rather than emotional regulation or dysregulation in a way that adds something to the treatment yes so there's, I think this touches on an issue in the field where there can be a lot of words or concepts out there for overlapping or similar concepts. And I know in my clinical training, there was ones I learned a bit more about, like this term of emotional awareness that I'm a bit more comfortable with, maybe alexithymia, what's that? So mm. where alexithymia fits in some of this emotional picture can be like, let's think, for example, about emotional intelligence as a construct. 
uh, emotional intelligence, most models of emotional intelligence we'll talk about, my ability to be aware of my own emotions and my ability to regulate my own emotions and also my ability to be aware of others' emotions and regulate or influence others' emotions. And if I can do all those, that's kind of this picture of emotional intelligence. So the alexithymia construct's a bit narrower than emotional intelligence in that alexithymia is just that spot of how good am I at being aware of my own emotions? And then if we think of other constructs like, say, the term emotional awareness, I think emotional awareness is a very useful construct. One thing I find in the literature, though, when emotional awareness is talked about is sometimes I find it's a bit vague about exactly what we're meaning. Am I meaning that I don't focus attention on my emotions very often? Am I meaning when I am focused attention on emotions, I don't, I'm confused by them? I don't know exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm doing there? Uh, and I like the fact that alexithymia adds a bit more specificity around that, where alexithymia says we're talking about both those things. And the whole construct includes both those things, but there's mm -hmm. these separable facets where we can look at them in a bit of a separable way. To what extent do you have difficulty focusing attention on emotions? To what extent do you have difficulty working out exactly what you're feeling? And then it adds into the picture as well, this facet of difficulty describing feelings, which really claim, came from the clinical origins of the construct where the typical presentation of the room was that they're not talking about emotions in a lot of depth. And that's, ah. I think, a nice, unique aspect that Alexithymia brings to the table that can have some high clinical relevance to thinking about it in that way. Oh, that's great. So you're saying that's how it appears in the room, how this looks in the room is the sense that the clients are not talking about emotional experience in depth. Is that right? Yes, yeah. I think you get some borderline clients who come in and they, they're all, they're just, they've got all kinds of emotions going on there and then you've got other clients who come in and they're not talking about their emotions. Is that a nice way to spot what might be described in a more nuanced way as alexithymia? You know, question mark, is this alexithymia? Yeah, yeah. I think in terms of our more informal assessments in the room of what's happening in the therapy room, looking out for when I'm talking about emotions, how in-depth do they seem to be able to go? Do they use a lot of different emotional words or does it always seem to be just the same couple of words? Is it more maybe vague terms like I just feel stressed or I, I feel tense? Yes. Am I or tending bad. to, yeah, or bad? Or am I tending towards just describing things in a very physical type way that I just feel tense? And, and yes. when asked pain. To, I feel pain. I just feel pain. I get the clients that just feel pain all over and I'm pretty sure that's an emotional of pain that my clients are feeling and that's undifferentiated yes, yes. and mm. then when kind of asking to describe that in a bit more detail clients that might have difficulty doing that it seems like we just get the sense as a clinician that it's it's hard for us to get to the real emotional heart of the issue there seems to be that 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 lack of depth behind it we're, we're feeling that that emotional disconnection in the room i think those are some signs that we can kind of be on the lookout for of is it, does alexithymia seem to be a part of this picture where this inability to access and engage and describe emotions in depth is is coming between us in in the therapy room? And because that that I think links back to one of your questions before about the problems caused. And uh, outside of I've talked a lot about psychopathology or mental health symptoms, but just in terms of relationships more generally, uh, alexithymia is very linked with interpersonal relationship issues because, as we know, emotions are very important in relationships. I need mm, to be able to indeed. understand ideally and be able to talk about my emotions and feelings, be able to connect and understand other people's feelings. And so to the extent that alexithymia gets in the way of me being able to understand and talk about my own emotions can then be much harder to create those, those close, vulnerable, uh, emotionally intimate connections. So what about... I'll give you time to think about this one, but I'm wondering whether there's a couple of key questions, you know, that yes. uh, we can be asking our clients, you know, like those kind of fabulous hook questions that uh, help us differentiate between whether this might be alexithymia or whether this is in a, uh, just a straight depression with a low alexithymia. I, I don't know. Or autism, we have these kind of key questions in our mind. Do you, does that one of those key questions come to mind or do you want to come back to that? Because I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> Under um, pressure, Dave. I don't have off the top of my head my my set interview questions. I think somewhat because I just I, 
I think administering an alexithymia measure itself, a psychometric tool, can be helpful there. Yes, super. But you know how many questionnaires there are to administer to our clients? And I'm thinking about the people listening and thinking about my staff and, you know, tooling them up around alexithymia and helping them understand, well, when might you think, ah, this person is a likely high on alexithymia, I'm going to get out Dave's latest fabulous tool and administer it. (laughs) Yes. Um, I mean, one thing that could be there and i'm just off off the fly coming up with some things here, yeah good that, that's that what i'm draw, looking for. Draw, drawing on some of the broader treatment principles that i can talk about as well i think if we think about a, a key thing behind alexithymia is difficulty differentiating between different emotional states so if we can if we can ask clients about specific categories of emotion things like and ask them about times where they might have experienced that in the past and then ask them a little bit about not just the label of, okay, I felt angry, but ask them about the different aspects of the emotion as well. Because there's a lot of things to an emotion. And this is part of, I think, the core psychoeducation that could be really key to alexithymia treatment. But an emotion, as we know, is not just this this feeling that washes over us. Uh, Most emotion uh, theories will talk about there being three channels of the emotion system. Experiential channel, that feeling of, say, fear that washes over me. Physiological channel, my heart rate changes, my breathing rate changes, sweat response, and behavioral channel, facial expressions, urges to act in certain ways. And so emotions being, emotions manifesting across all three of those channels, sometimes not Ah. manifesting across all three. Sometimes it might just be the behavior. I don't really feel an emotion, but my behavioral channels off the the scale. And so teaching- teaching clients about those different channels of the emotion. Also, what's linked to different emotions in terms of typical uh, antecedent events? So let's think about anger, for example. Anger can often uh, be linked to these sorts of events where I feel like someone's getting in the way of my goals or there's an injustice. There's There's an obstacle being put in my way in an unfair way, this sense of injustice. So thinking about typical eliciting events, the experiential, the physiological, the behavioral manifestation of emotion, typical cognitions that might accompany it. With anger, for example, yeah. it might be about how, oh, this is just so unfair. Why are they doing this? And also the underlying function of the affect. Uh, anger functions a lot to drive our behavior to attack, to destroy the barriers. And so in, 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 in using these sorts of emotion frameworks and, and trying to get at to what extent is the client good at understanding that side of things i think we can ask the client about certain times that they've experienced emotion of anger versus sadness versus fear versus disgust and then inquire about the extent to which oh what was the sort of events and how did you feel in your body inquire about these different elements and see to so what extent I, they, yep. yep so go on see to see to what extent they can actually make those links in their body yes yeah. Yes. And then and verbally with you, just making the links actually. And listening to you, I'm thinking um, my little EMDR brain went on and said, so, well, in, in creating a trauma network, uh, we ask questions about you know the image and then we ask about uh, what the core self-inferential cognition and then we'll ask about the emotion and where is it located in the body. And it seems to me that that, that kind of, series of questions would quickly uh, reveal whether the person was able to make those connections, you know, um, and, the, and do the network, but also it would give you quite a bit of information around the, the level of alexithymia. But also it, just in a simpler way you could, as you said, I'm thinking, uh, ask, ask the client, can you give me an example, you know, where you, where you, you felt anger, as you said, yes. and, and yeah. what was the situation? Yep. Great. And where did you like that in your body? And, and I'm imagining, uh, clients who present with these kind of problems um, of anger, you know, if they're not high in the lexithymia, would probably be able to describe um, those links in a satisfactory way. And if they were not, weren't, if they were high in lexithymia, they might have um, greater difficulty and alert us to the need to yes. go down that pathway and assess further. Does that sound right? Yes. Yeah, I think that that can be a really good way of approaching it, and perhaps as well. We might expect, and I think we'd need more research on this, but what we might expect is because the sorts of situations that elicit fear versus sadness versus anger can be a little bit different at times, we might see maybe less differentiation between those different situations.
Okay. So you've got the, you're thinking about lexithymia in the room and you've asked, you know, bunch, asked a bunch of questions and you want to assess it being a good clinician. You want to give them <laughs> your client a questionnaire. You want to support David's research, you know. So um, I've got the PA here in front of me, but I wonder yes. whether you could um, tell our listeners a little bit more about this wonderful questionnaire that you, you've developed. Yeah, so alexithymia over the years has, is typically, if you want to administer a formal psychometric measure of it, is typically been done via self-report questionnaires. And part of that, I think, is convenience. Uh, questionnaires are convenient to administer, but also the nature of the construct is very much about how someone's experiencing their emotions. So it can be a bit tricky to get at that directly without just directly asking the person around that experience. So self-report questionnaires have been most common. There was one introduced in the 90s called the Toronto Alexithymia Scale that has been very popular, a really good questionnaire. That's used a lot in, uh, in a lot of the literature. But there were a few limitations of it uh some of the aspects had lower reliability and there was also this question that i was quite interested in in my research of is someone's ability to process their negative emotions necessarily exactly the same as their ability to process their positive emotions because we know for other constructs that it's not always necessarily the same someone might really struggle just with negative emotions and not positive and so what we wanted to do when we uh back in 2018 we introduced the perth alexithymia questionnaire was try to introduce a questionnaire that had a bit more comprehensiveness to it around assessing not just negative emotions but also processing positive emotions and the other thing we wanted to do as well was make it free so the the pack is freely available online uh for clinicians and researchers to download and start using in their work and i have to say thank you for your generosity because i think that's <laughs> the way science should be um often is not and so it's fantastic that uh, i've been able to get hold of it myself and uh, i started administering it and uh so thanks for that um i just wanted to say yeah it seems to me that as a clinician that it makes sense um evolutionarily that we would pay more attention and have more difficulty with negative emotions and positive emotions is that where you see the link yeah, so we do tend to find in the data with the pack that on the subscales, because you can get a total scale score as an overall marker of lexithymia, but then you can also get subscales that look at the facets for negative emotions and positive. You tend to you do tend to find on those scores that typically in a whole sample, people will report more difficulties processing their negative emotions, identifying, describing yeah. their negative emotions than their positive emotions. We suspect a lot of that effect is probably avoidance. We might be more likely to avoid our, our negative emotions, uh, but we do need some they're more unpleasant. research on that. Yeah. Because yeah. they're unpleasant, you know. Yes. That's just, yes. I mean, at a very basic level, they're unpleasant, so we humans like to avoid things that are unpleasant and then unless we have to face them yes, and then it becomes a coping coping strategy, yes. isn't it? Pretend it's not actually happening. Mm. Uh, so, yes, just recircling back then to the questionnaire, uh, can you tell us a little bit about I, I appreciate it's uh, – not always easy to elicit because people don't have that recognition and I have administered it a couple of times and on both times I've thought, yes, I can see these things but the client in front of me is having difficulty recognising it in themselves. They don't know how terrible they are recognising and describing their own difficulties, let alone their own emotions. Is that something you find sometimes? Yeah, I think there's good validity and rely it's a concern that comes up in the literature this 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 concern of well if the construct itself is about self-awareness difficulties can i assess yeah, it through right. a self-report questionnaire and uh -huh. so it's something that comes up what i'd say on that is that there is good validity and reliability evidence for self-report alexithymia questionnaires still okay, great. like the great. pack the pack has good validity and reliability across the very various markers so I think, though, you you may still encounter, particularly clients that might be really severe levels of lexithymia, there could be then uh, issues where maybe they'll need to be walked through it a bit or it'd be explained a bit. There are, there are also some structured interview alexithymia measures that try to get at that a bit more and address some of that self-report questionnaire issue, uh, but they haven't yet been as widely used in clinical or research work partly because they, they just take quite a long time to do and I think as you mentioned before we've often got a lot of constructs or a lot of questionnaires we might want to administer alexithymia might just be one thing and maybe it's not the main thing and so one thing we wanted to do around that was so the the original pack we introduced in 2018 was 24 items and most alexithymia questionnaires are around 20 items 
25, 40 items. But just this year, we published uh, one called the Pack S, the the Pack short form. That's only six items. So we were quite okay. excited for that. To if all you want an overall lexithymia score, we wanted to provide this short, sharp, little, robust measure Super. to be able to do that. And so we're, we're clinicians will love that. Yeah, we're excited for that. Hopefully, opening up. A much more uh, ease of lexithymia assessments in more diverse range of settings where I can throw in this six item thing and still be able to miss my DAS and all that stuff without it be- becoming overwhelming uh, for the client to fill out. I just want to say there that to list our listeners that I will be sure that we upload these documents to the Facebook page in due course. You're happy to share those yeah, with sure. the listeners? Yeah, yeah, yeah fantastic. Some people might also be interested in there's a, we did up a, a scoring program in Excel spreadsheet called uh, the Lloyd and Priest psychometric auto score. That was, that was led by my wife, Erin. And the, the, the idea there is it, it allows you to put in the client's scores for each of the items and automatically calculate for the pack and a range of other measures as well. Uh, compare it to, Oh, look at all the subscales, compare it to norms to tell you if it's a higher score or not. And it also creates little profile graphs that, that show the profiles. So that, that's been a popular tool as well in trying to increase how easy it is to administer and interpret in clinical practice. Great. Now, could we just talk a little bit about therapy, you know, treatment? We've got, sure. We've now understand a little bit about the literature. Yes. A little bit about the model and we've assessed it. And what about talkie therapies um, or what about therapy? Um, I'm wondering about what the literature says about what therapies are helpful and what therapies are less helpful. Yes. So we do know from the literature that psychological therapies in general can reduce levels of alexithymia. Alexithymia is not something that it's just static. It's always stays the same. You can't impact it. It does seem that, that we can make significant impacts and improvements in people's alexithymia levels. And so we do need more research in terms of identifying the exact components behind, hey, what's the most effective treatment components that we should have in there? But some of the work we're doing is about outlining what does some key treatment principles seem to be? And a lot of the a lot of the goals around this in in my mind, and I think there's good evidence behind this, is if we think about what causes alexithymia, we were talking about those underdeveloped emotion schema systems, and we were talking about high levels of emotional avoidance. So essentially what we want to do if we want to reduce alexithymia is we want to build up and develop the schema structures that understanding of emotions, and we want to reduce levels of experiential avoidance. And so how might we go about doing that? So some principles I'll talk about within a cognitive behavior therapy type framework, because that's a lot of the framework I tend to operate in, are Mm -hmm. a few key things. So I can talk through each of these in turn, but psychoeducation about emotions, uh, mm-hmm. covering emotions and a focus on emotions in our therapeutic discussions, core techniques that will elicit a focus and understanding of emotions, things like mindfulness of emotions, and, and also techniques like CBT thought tracking diaries that might help us throughout the day to understand the different patterns underlying emotions. And so in talking through each of some of those core components, psychoeducation about emotions, we talked a bit about before, where we're essentially trying to build up that understanding of the complexity of emotions, that emotions are not just this feeling that washes past me. There's the different channels of the emotion system, experiential channel, physiological channel, behavioral channel. And in my experience, teaching clients about that fact can actually be quite a big game changer for alexithymic clients because there's a bit of work showing that whilst in most people, we tend to see those different channels of the emotion system go up and down together. In alexithymia, there can be a higher chance of what we call discordance, where I might be feeling or experiencing emotion mainly just in one or two of the channels and not the other one. It might be that I'm not feeling the emotion experientially, but behaviorally, I'd look in the mirror and I'm crying. And so teaching clients about the fact that we, even if it's just one of the channels that it's mainly manifesting in, that can still be that we're having an emotion, I think can be, in my experience, quite a big game changer for many clients. Teaching them about the typical eliciting events that cause different categories of emotions, using emotion wheels to increase this differentiation of different labels of emotions. So one of the ones I use in that space, not that there's 
the emotion wheel to use. But I tend to use one uh, from a researcher called Placek, who has this emotion wheel that delineates different core emotions, anger, disgust, sadness, surprise, fear, trust, joy, and anticipation. And the thing I like about this emotion wheel, it looks a bit like a flower if you Google it, is it differentiates those eight core emotions, but then it differentiates as well as those can manifest at different levels of intensity. If we think of anger, maybe we've got more fury or rage on the high end, but we've got more irritability or frustration on the low end. And it also positions them in a way where we can think about how different core emotions can blend together. Uh, the combination of anger and disgust might be contempt. And so I, I like the way that it talks about some of that complexity of emotions, but there's a, mm. a, a lot of emotion wheels out there. I, I'm not saying okay. there's, there's some official, here's the official list of what emotions are, but whatever can be a useful tool to help us and the clients think about emotions and be able to label them in a bit more of a differentiated way. That sounds really good. Yeah, those I think are key psychotherapy, uh, psychoeducation type tools where I think where the, the trouble where we can run into around alexithymia treatment or therapy uh, with alexithymia can be, say we have a therapy where we assume that the client can talk about and understand their emotions without first teaching them those skills. If the client has high alexithymia, yeah, that's where I think we're going to run into some issues. And so a lot of the early work in alexithymia was done uh, from a psychoanalytic perspective. Uh, Sifni Austin and Maya were psychoanalysts. And part of the interest in it to start with came from, they were finding that the patients high in alexithymia, the therapy wasn't working too well, that they weren't having the impact that they were with other clients. So it was seen as this, this treatment factor that was very important to, to consider. And some of what stemmed from that was then this philosophy of, okay, someone with alexithymia struggles understanding and accessing their emotions and being introspective. Should we just avoid that in treatment then? Should we have very behavioral-based treatments where they don't have to think about their emotions? Should we have just medication-based treatments where they don't have to think about their emotions? And that's definitely one philosophy. But what I'd say on that is touching back on what we we're talking about before if as part of my case formulation i think that this core deficits in being able to process and then go on and regulate emotions is part of the picture that's predisposing them to the problems in their life i think then my philosophy is therapeutically we need to kind of address those core mechanisms that alexithymia can often be part of so i love this idea of emotional concordance you know mm, it's yes. pretty typical in some ways of CBT, but I guess it's just a way of thinking about it. If you're linking in CBT, we're linking thoughts, feelings, and behaviors and physical sensations. So you you if you could be training Alexa, training people in emotional literacy and awareness, um, and treating their alexithymia implicitly, you know, as part of the treatment. That would be yes. Would CBT should be doing that for those who have uh, alexithymia, high alexithymia. I'm not suggesting that we just rely on our cbt our general cbt yeah. skills to do it but then just wondering whether it's, it's going to be happening and as you say then if we notice that clients aren't doing a great job of it that we might take a sidestep and focus for a few sessions on yes. psychoeducation around alexithymia developing better emotional literacy and awareness and so forth before returning back to the you know the main therapeutic work does that sound like a reasonable way to proceed yeah, no, I think that sounds really good. I think there's a, there's a lot of modules and approaches out there that are for, say, emotional awareness. And I think yes, we indeed. can really we can really think of alexithymia as synonymous with emotional awareness in in many ways. So which means we can think, borrow from yeah, doesn't it? We can borrow from techniques that are already there when we're thinking about our clients thinking more broadly, not just I have to do it this way. But hang on, what do I already know? Yes, that might be really helpful for me for this client and who's got really low emotional awareness. I'm wondering now whether I might ask you a little bit about uh, just in wrapping things up, moving towards wrapping things up. Um, I read somewhere that some researchers are using uh, creative writing to help people with alexithymia, and then also I hear about intranasal oxytocin that's been used as an adjunctive treatment in psychotherapy. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, so the oxytocin thing isn't an area I've read a lot about or know a lot about, so I can't comment too much on that. The creative writing side of thing, I've seen a study where they were looking at if people read fiction or engage in writing, does it impact emotion processing abilities in a study where they found that it improved what they call theory of mind 
ability or effective theory oh, yeah. of mind, which is our ability to understand other people's mental states, understand and recognize other people's emotions. So there is a, a slight difference there with alexithymia, where alexithymia is about recognizing our own emotions and effective theory of mind being about understanding other, other people's emotions. And so this study did find that uh, that creative writing and, and reading fiction stuff improved effective theory of mind. I think it's an area uh, where we could explore a bit more and look at what impact might it have on alexithymia. And I think thinking about core principles of in alexithymia treatment, I think the core principles that are likely to be most useful is to what extent does this activity help this person think about emotions in a more nuanced way, put accurate labels to emotions, understand how different elements of emotion connect together to connect to this label of say sadness and mm, and to mm. not avoid our emotions so to the extent mm. that someone's engaging in in reading or, or creative writing expression that allows them to access and understand about emotions to express their emotions then i think yes. con conceptually that makes a lot of sense to me that that could that could impact this ability and i'm also wondering um in a linked way to that when you're working with clients with traumatic events um, sometimes asking them to write a narrative. Mm. This is not, not creative, of yes. course, but writing a narrative and then rewriting that narrative uh, with less emotional avoidance and more use of adjectives, you know, and getting them to connect more with their bodies, what they're feeling when they're yeah. when they're just when they're writing their narratives. This feels like a, a slightly related a related way of helping develop emotional awareness and connection, which is then reducing that alexithymia if i'm if i'm on the right yes. path there yeah i think definitely yeah. i think being able to engage people in different types of modalities think about their emotions and the expression of emotions in, in different modalities whether it's in the therapeutic discussion or through writing and and i i think that that conceptually uh seems really really a useful avenue one thing that just popped into my head around therapeutic discussion side of things is uh is this idea of okay let's bring people's attention to their emotions let's talk about the different aspects of emotion how you're feeling that in your body guide them in in linking it to certain labels uh, but one thing that that i i find useful in this area is explicit explicitly explaining to clients why we're doing that and that it's also okay to be vague with it i, I i've sometimes had clients um, come to me for therapy because i've got alexithymia on the website and stuff like that and they'll sometimes talk about past therapeutic experiences where they ended up leaving the therapist because they were feeling like they were letting the therapist down or they weren't doing therapy right because they'd be asked about their emotions and they were feeling like they couldn't access it accurately or talk about it properly and so they then ended up leaving and so i think a, a nice way of helping to try address that can be quite explicit that there's permission here to be here's why we're doing this here's why we're discussing emotions and it's okay to be vague with it like we're, we're on this journey together part of the therapy mm. process is about over time like we're going to develop our ability to think about these things in a more complex way mindfulness tell us about the role of mindfulness uh, in this area yeah, so I use mindfulness and specifically mindfulness of emotions a lot in therapy when I'm trying to target alexithymia as another modality to get at that understanding of emotions. So this mindfulness of emotions activity that I'm sure many people are familiar with, where we get people to think of an emotion eliciting event and then recognize where's that feeling in your body? What shape is it? Uh, what color is it? Is it, it moving or still? Yeah. What, what, what's it? Does it have a weight to it? We're getting them to yeah, describe great. and think about their emotions in a bit of a different, maybe more abstract way, and then guide them in putting a label to that. No matter how vague that label is, this this big black heavy blob in my chest—that's sadness. And and so then the next time that the big black heavy blob comes up in their body, they can maybe uh, be a bit more confident about exactly what it is and understanding and, and being able to sit with that emotion and differentiate it from other sensations in this body, in their body, this, this stinging red triangle in my head. I, I can mm. differentiate <laughs> those two, even if I don't have the exact right label for them just yet. So right. I use mindfulness yeah, of emotions uh, quite a bit in, in, in my work with clients. Is there a book? Is there a book you're working on, Dave? Surely there is. <laughs> well, now's the time to plug it. Yeah, it's all, this is all about advertising, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's about getting that great research out there to our listeners. That's what it's about, Dave. Yeah, so uh, some of my work of summarising these alexithymia ideas, the latest handbook of emotion regulation edited by Grossen 
and Ford will be coming out later this year. And so I've written the chapter on alexithymia as part of that handbook of emotion regulation. So if you want to hear my work on it, then then that book's coming out soon. But there is also a book called Alexithymia by uh, Lumine, who's a, a researcher in Belgium that does a lot in this work, uh, a lot in this area. We will make sure that all those links uh, to pre-order and the title and so <laughs> forth and um, some of the seminal articles are on the uh, on the Facebook uh, group for those of our listeners who are very interested to uh, explore this area. So I just want to say, Dave, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us this afternoon. I'm sure our listeners will be thrilled. I have certainly learned a lot and I'm really I'm confident that uh, many listeners will also be upskilled and will be administering your PAQ and thinking uh, about their clients from a slightly different perspective than probably like if they're like me, they're going, oh, there's that client. I wasn't quite sure what was going on there with this uh, presentation and difficulty with emotions, but now I'm going to give them PAQ and take a slightly different lens to their problem and see whether I can make some differences in a way that I work with them. So thanks again. And uh, all the very best. Thank you. It's been fun.